0: Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. The glorious era that was Tudor England helped shape the early exploration and colonization of the North American continent. Join me as we continue a deep dive into Tudor England and its great transatlantic explorers. As the Tudors prepare to explore and settle in America, the battle rages on to determine if the colonization will be done under the Catholic or Protestant banner.
1: By leaving the throne to Lady Jane Grey, Edward had flouted both his father King Henry VIII's will and the act of succession. This flagrant disregard for the law was unacceptable even to many Protestants. It would have given the crown even greater powers, putting it above Parliament and the law. Moreover, Lady Jane's supporters had made a fatal mistake. They'd failed to arrest Edward's Catholic sister Mary, who was, according to Henry's will, the legitimate heir to the throne. Instead, forewarned by friends at court, Mary fled out of reach to the depths of East Anglia, where she had vast estates and a loyal following. On the 10th of July, she proclaimed herself rightful Queen of England, and two days later she took up residence at the great castle of Framlingham, which she made her headquarters for an armed assault on the throne of England. Troops flooded in, and Mary inspected her army in front of the castle in true royal style. But no blow needed to be struck. Faced with Mary's overwhelming strength, the grey faction threw in the towel, and Queen Jane was deposed after reigning for less than a fortnight. It was legality legitimacy, and the sense that she was Henry VIII's daughter, which had won the day for Mary. But she didn't see it like that. In thee, O Lord, I trust that I will not be confounded for ever, Mary said. If God be for us, who can be against us? She was convinced that her accession against all the odds was a miracle brought about by God for his own purposes. It was a sign, and she was now a woman with a mission to restore England. the Catholic faith. In public, Mary promised to return to something like the consensus of her father's last years. There would be no forced conversions, her propaganda implied. In private, she was more candid. She boasted herself a virgin sent of God to ride and tame the people of England. The contrast was reflected in the hesitant start to reconversion. To begin with, people were encouraged to return to the old faith after nearly twenty years of Protestant reforms, and Edward's policies were assaulted only slowly. But it would not be long before Mary increased the pace of bringing England back to true religion. First, however, to prevent the country ever returning to the heresy of Protestantism, Mary must marry and produce an heir, for otherwise her father's will left the throne to her Protestant half-sister Elizabeth. Long ago in her youth Mary had been briefly betrothed to the emperor Charles V now Charles offered up his own son and heir Philip who had been brought up in Spain was imbued with that country's passionate catholicism more importantly his father dedicated the empire's resources to stamping out protestantism throughout Europe now England would be brought back to due obedience to the pope but the idea The Spanish king ruling in England was wildly unpopular. Even though a yearning for Catholicism remained widespread in England, decades of anti-papal, nationalistic propaganda had also done their work. The papacy was looked upon as foreign and un-English. Thus, when the Spanish embassy arrived, boys threw snowballs at them, and the rest of the crowd, nothing rejoicing, held down their heads sorrowfully. More seriously, an uprising in Kent in 1554, led by Sir Thomas Wyatt, fought its way to London, and for a while Mary's throne was in jeopardy. Mary rose to the occasion, won over Londoners with a magnificent speech in Guildhall, and crushed the revolt. She then exacted a terrible revenge, executing all the leaders of the Conspiracy and Lady Jane Grey herself, whom she had hitherto spared. Elizabeth was implicated in the rebellion and sent to the Tower. With the rebellion defeated, and with Parliament's reluctant acquiescence, there was now no barrier to Mary's marriage to Philip. Philip landed in Southampton on the twentieth of July, fifteen fifty four. It was close to the first anniversary of Mary's accession. Five days later, Philip and Mary were married at Winchester Cathedral. The couple possessed through the west doors along an elevated walkway to a high platform in the centre of the nave where the ceremony took place. It deliberately invoked an older and better world. Mary used an old-fashioned wedding ring made of a band of plain gold, and she swore the woman's old oath to be bonny and buxom in bed and at board. The couple were able to have children that older, better, catholic world would live again mary was 37 and prematurely aged but she sincerely believed that god would once again favor her and england with a miracle a few months later mary like her namesake the blessed virgin declared that the babe had stirred in her womb
0: hi everyone if you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault listen up You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Centre may not be available in all states. The prospect of a
1: Catholic heir greatly strengthened Mary's hand and Parliament voted to return the Church of England to the obedience of the Pope. The royal supremacy which Henry VIII had forced on the English people seemed to be over. In early April, fifteen fifty five, Mary moved to Hampton Court for the birth of the child that would crown her life and reign and guarantee the future of Catholic England. Her confinement, as customary, began with the ceremony of taking to her chamber, in which she bade farewell to the male-dominated world of the court and withdrew instead to the purely female realm of her birthing chamber. There, etiquette required she remained secluded and invisible until the birth. But Mary couldn't keep her joy to herself. Instead, on St. George's Day, she appeared at a window to watch her husband Philip lead the garter celebrations, and she turned side on to show off her big belly to the crowd below. Good Catholics rejoiced with the Queen, as they did when the serious business of enforcing Catholicism began. Part of the return to Rome was the restoration of heresy laws that punished those who denied the Catholic faith with the terrible death of burning alive. The burnings began in February 1555. Over the following three years, more than 300 men and women died in agony at the stake. Faced with such persecution many other leading Protestants fled into exile. One of the exiles was the Protestant cleric, John Fox, who decided to write a history of the persecution. Using the trial records, eyewitness accounts, and the writings of the martyrs themselves, he compiled his Acts and Monuments, soon known as Fox's Book of Martyrs. It became, after the Bible, the second most widely read book in English, and it damned Mary's reputation forever as Bloody Mary, especially the gruesome woodcuts. But Fox's propaganda would have amounted to very little if it hadn't quickly become obvious that Mary's condition was a phantom pregnancy. By early summer, she was a public laughing stock, with stories circulating that she was pregnant with a lapdog or a monkey. By August, even Mary herself had abandoned hope. Moreover, at thirty-nine, it seemed unlikely she would ever conceive again. With her pregnancy exposed as a delusion, power started to ebb away from the Queen. Philip, now with no long-term interest in England, abandoned his wife to return to his continental possessions. Still worse, her failure to produce an heir, and with it the guarantee of a Catholic future, broke Mary's hold on Parliament. Crucial to the government's plans for the final suppression of Protestantism was a bill to confiscate the landed estates of the Protestant exiles. If the bill passed, the economic foundations of their resistance would be destroyed. The government strained every nerve, but so too did the opposition, led by Sir Anthony Kingston. With the connivance of the sergeant-at-arms, the doors of the house were locked from the inside. Kingston thundered his protests, and the bill was defeated. Such scenes would not be seen again in Parliament until the 17th century. Despite the loss of the political initiative, Mary grimly persisted with the persecution of Protestants. In 1558 she became seriously ill, although she fondly imagined that she was pregnant again. She even wrote her will, leaving the throne to her unborn Catholic child. But six months later, with her health rapidly fading, even Mary had to face reality, and she added a codicil to her will. In it, she finally acknowledged that it was likely that she would have no issue or heir of her body, and that she would be succeeded instead by her next heir and successor, by the laws and statutes of this realm. That, of course, was her half-sister Elizabeth, though Mary couldn't even bring herself to write her name. Seeing visions of heavenly children to the last, she died on the night of the 16th of November, 1558. She was forty-two. Two of Henry's three children had succeeded to the throne and, by their contrasting religious extremism, had imperiled both supremacy and the crown. Would his last surviving heir, Elizabeth, do any better? Next time, we explore England's
0: great age of North American discovery during the Tudor period, known as the Elizabethan Age. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride.